Salutations from Southern California, where the most sacred sound is the sweet strum of the surf guitars. Welcome to the fourth episode of Slammin' Stan. This is Vandal Drummond, the man of a thousand names. You can call me Vandal, or you can call me Lucky Pierre, or you can call me Kurt Brown, Jimmy Cyclone, Rockin' Jerry Brown, The Abortionist, a host of other names, and I am here with my... uh, Cohort in crime, Alfredo Esparza. Alfredo, how are you tonight? Doing great. How come I don't have a nickname? I need. We've a got to come up. We've got to come up with one. In fact, maybe, maybe that will inspire some people to call into the show or uh, <laughs> no, send us emails. It's or, time or, to come up with a nickname for Alfredo. Or maybe we shouldn't come up with a nickname. Mm, I think we've already started the fire. We've already lit the fuse. This is the fourth episode, and. We are entitling this episode Jobber Palooza. This is a salutation to the jobbers, those glorious losers who would appear every week on our TV sets to tap out, lay down, or go to sleep in the ring. Jobbers are an interesting bunch. They range anywhere from extremely gifted workers to the lousiest of workers, from muscle men like Mean Mike Masters and Rick Drayson to the biggest of slobs like Joe Turco. Every territory had their, you know, their weekly losers, and jobbers in every territory were presented in a slightly different way. Sometimes some territories of the jobbers would have their day in the sun in every match, look like they were about to pull an upset. In other areas, particularly old school WWF, they would just get slaughtered for several minutes on your TV screen. And or if, they, or if they were wrestling Vader, they pretty much you you already knew they were dying. Exactly. At the minute the, the the bell rang, they were already dead. <laughs> yes, I think when they faced Vader, they were pretty much saying their prayers. I mean, one man known to not take very good care of the jobbers. You know, one of the things about jobbers was like how so, some of them were really like good workers in other parts, and they were pushed in other parts of the country, like in different territories. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. Some were very good workers. In fact, the first one that comes to mind is somebody you and I were speaking of recently, and that was Dennis Stamp, who usually was on the undercard in most territories, but here in Los Angeles, he came in here, if I remember correctly, late 1974, and they gave him a push pretty much right off the bat. I believe he held the tag straps with Louis Tillet. But other territories, I, you know read of him he was somewhere on the undercard yeah because every single time i would i would i remember when i would pick up the apner mags it always had like all of a sudden you'd see like chick donovan as a as a tag team champion in memphis or or you'd see tom pritchard because tom pritchard when he first started was like a jobber in um mid-south wasn't he in mid-south and portland and all those places they gave him a pretty decent push in portland actually he held the tag straps with hack sawyer that was, if I remember correctly, that was shortly after he had his run. Uh, no, no, that was after his run in Georgia. Yeah. Uh, Chick Donovan is a is a, a great uh, one to point at, though. There's somebody who got a pretty decent push in magazines, and then you'd see him doing jobs every week, you know, and losing on Georgia TV. Yeah, and then there was Rip Rogers was another one who did that. Was a really uh, very talented. In fact, you talk to anybody, they'll tell you how talented Rip Rogers was. Uh, he's one who who was one of the jobbers in Georgia. 
And Mick Foley even wrote something in his first uh, autobiography uh, saying something to the extent of even Rip Rogers a little, is a little bizarre for the business and speculated that I, that's why he didn't get that much of a push in certain areas. Probably I don't know if that's the case, but he was a good one. There were, we had a wide array of workers here in Los Angeles who lost every week. When I started watching in 1972, uh, Rick Grayson was the muscle man who had Hollywood looks, very good-looking man, okay worker. Uh-huh. Never, and when I was a little kid, I'd sit there looking at him saying, why isn't this guy winning all the time? Yeah, and, and you know, that, that's the other thing, the way we would react to jobbers at the time. Like certain yes. guys, certain guys you knew, the minute you saw them, just based on their body, you were like, this guy's going to lose. He has no chance, you know, like the Mulkies. Exactly. Guys, guys who had like that no, no muscle definition. And then you had, like, these other guys who were, like, that looked good, and you always wondered, why aren't these guys getting pushed? And exactly, yeah. And when I, you're, when I was 10 years old, I didn't know anything about work rate. I also didn't know the concept of a, a ham and egg or somebody who just wrestled part-time, which was the case with Rick Grayson. Uh, if he was there full-time, I don't know, maybe they would have given him uh, a full-time push, but he did a lot of, you know, TV work and, you know, modeling, that sort of thing. Um, one of the more talented ones here when I was a kid was Wild Man Jack Armstrong, who also was doing it as a part-time gig. And then we had other jobbers. We had one called El Negro, who was a regular here. Uh, I, I, I saw his name listed on a bunch of different shows so, like over the years. I, yeah, I, not I much of a worker, but he was a regular know, but, here. <laughs> you know, I don't know if it was the same El Negro, considering there were... Like, there might have been several El Negros. It's he was a far cry, for, far cry from Negro Casas, let me tell you yeah. that. <laughs> who, who, was the, who was the El Negro in, in California? He was a fellow named Dario Romero, mm. who uh, I was told is the brother of Ricky Romero. Wow. Which might be true. I, I heard Ricky Romero started here in Pomona back in the late 50s or early 60s. Back when there was wrestling in Pomona. Uh, yes. <laughs> but I think every... No matter what generation you grew up in, there were those jobbers that every week you would see them lose. And I think back, and I wondered if I was the only kid who thought, well, gosh, I hope these guys win one of these weeks. <laughs> and and you, know, you don't have to watch very, very long. You watch for a month or two and you realize, okay, these guys are not going to win, ever. Yeah. But I was, on a, I was on a show in Garden Grove about 10 years ago. And for you folks who uh, watched WWF-TV in the mid to late 1980s, you'll remember some of uh, the jobbers that Billy Anderson booked for a lot of those shows. Uh, Louis Spicoli, when he first started out. There was uh, Ricky Itaki, Stefan DeLeon, and I bring these guys up because they were buddies of mine. And about 10 years ago on this show in Garden Grove, it was you know an indie show, there were no names. They were all local boys. But there was this one kid who was probably in his late teens, had a really muscular build. He had kind of that Calgary uh, shooter look to him. He was a you know, good worker, very, uh, very uh, mat-based worker. But he was in the dressing room, and both Ricky Itaki and Stefan De Leon were on the show. And when he saw the two of them together his jaw just dropped 
And he ran up to them going, oh my God, I watched you guys every week on WWF TV when I was a little kid. My brother and I watched every week hoping that this time you would win. We were so upset that you never got to win. And this guy went, went out to the crowd and brought his, uh, his kid brother who he used to watch wrestling with and got pictures taken with Ricky Itaki and Stefan De Leon. And one, I, it felt good just to see those two cats getting a lot of attention because they're both really great guys and excellent workers. And they seem shocked as anyone that somebody was fussing over them. But the other thing I loved about it was, huh, I'm not the only dumb kid out there who thought, come on, jobbers, come on, you can do it this week. You know, there was always that one guy that you really were rooting for. Like there was yeah, a lot of the jobbers had appeal to them. I mean, I mean, some of them you could, you could really give a crap about. Like you would be like, oh, they'll be gone by next week. But then there was always that one guy who would actually get a little offense thrown in, to, to throw in. Exactly. All of, sudden, all of a sudden, you'd be like, "Come on, let it be this time." And exactly. And different territories handled handled it in different ways. Some guys would just get an inkling of defense in. Here in Los Angeles, uh, the jobbers usually got a a good share of spots in the matches. The ones lower on the food chains would more or less get squashed, like El Negro. But there were others like uh, there was a guy named Billy Rogers, another guy named John Burrich who not only would, you know, get some good spots in the matches, but sometimes they would get a bit of a push where they'd get occasional wins on TV. And sometimes it was several consecutive weeks. Sometimes it would be once in a blue moon. Now, Fredo, we all have our favorite jobbers. Who are your favorites? Or was there one particular one when you were a kid who you just kept hoping would have his day in the sun? Well, mine, mine hands down was um, you know, I'm I'm a big old mark for the, for the hairy bearded, look, you know, the bearded looking, <laughs> biker looking guys who, who who just the wild man. I was a big fan of Mike Boyette. Oh, the Always hippie talked. Mike Boyette. Yep, and I remember the first time I, I I think one of the first times I ever talked to you was I was telling you about Mike Boyette and you 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 made you made a comment that you remembered him from, from like what was it a tag team with um. What was it, Irish Mickey Doyle? With Irish Mickey Doyle. Uh, when I was first breaking into wrestling, I was trained for a short time by Mickey Doyle, who's, uh, I would never say was a jobber, but was always one of those guys kind of in the middle of, of the, uh, the, middle of the in, card. In the middle of the card. Except, actually, I take that back. When he came to L.A., he got a huge push in the first year he was here, but then after that, uh, they jobbed him so much that... They used to make jokes about it in the Herald Examiner when they covered wrestling. Uh, they would say, uh, you know, uh, there's a new d- doll coming out, the Mickey Doyle doll. You wind him up and he gets pinned. Oh, God. He, he jobbed was, to everybody. You know, he, was, he was the Clippers before the Clippers um, he was, came to LA. That's a good way to put it. He was the Clippers, <laughs> the L.A. Clippers of professional wrestling. There you go. And I yeah. finally asked him about it once, and he alluded to uh, not getting along with uh, – the booker at the time, so I guess he wound up wound up on somebody's shit list, which makes sense because they went from giving him a good push to just no matter who he wrestled, he'd he'd be jobbing to less talented jobbers. Wow. But yes, he used to team with Mike Boyette under the name the Hippies, and they'd come out in these leather, red, white, and blue vests. And uh, when Doyle trained me, I went up to wrestle in Vancouver and. 
right before I went, he uh, he handed me his uh, hippie vest to take with me, and to this day, it's probably my most treasured pro wrestling possession, along with my little cut-out Freddie Blassie mask that I got at the first match I ever went to. You still have the vest? I still have the vest, yes. And when are you going to wear it <laughs> to a wrestling show? Oh, Lord, I wore it. I wore it on one show, I think, about 15 years ago. Oh, my first hair versus mask match against Gemini Kid. Special you know, occasion. Might I make a suggestion to you? Yes. And maybe you could do this next time there's a WrestleMania. You could find that guy who wore that um, polka, that polka dot sweat, that sweater or whatever it was. Remember that guy in the front row? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. You could sit next, right next to him with the vest. I totally forgot about that yeah, guy. The most surreal that. thing about WrestleMania. Yeah, that was the best part of WrestleMania. But but anyway, back to Mike Boyette. The, the yeah. What I always got a kick out of it, out of him, was um, he always lost, and they made a point about mentioning how many his, his losing streak, which was like the reverse Goldberg type of streak, which I always thought was. I, yes, I, I remember I that. And they he would even cut interviews each week, talking yeah, about how like, this I, was going to be his week. Yeah, and I I was always excited. I was like, oh come on, let it be this one time. And and he w- would get that one moment where he would actually get it like a shot at winning, and all of a sudden he would just blow it. And just you just it was kind of like a sports a, a game, you know, where you where you your team is close to winning and they miss the final shot, and you're like, you know, you're like, fuck it, he lost again. Yes, week after week, and they did a yeah. similar uh, angle with Barry Horowitz. Yeah, I mean, and they've done it. I mean, I think. I was reading up on the Mokies, and I guess that's how the Mokies were doing their gimmick, too, about losing every every week as a tag team. So. The Mokies accomplished what I think nobody else did. They were Barry Horowitz kind of reigns as probably the most prolific jobber out there. Yeah. The Mokies are like the most prolific jobbing tag team. And I don't know if I could even think of another tag team whose entire career was made out of... You know, was losing because I mean, yes, because they only lo- they only won one match throughout their their run with the NWA. I mean, and that was a wonderful angle. I thought they should have ran with it just a little longer, but there was nothing like watching those guys bump. Were they good? Because I can't remember them at all. I, I remember I, I, them being lame on offense, that. but their bumps. I, I remember some of those backdrops Randy Mokey used to take. Uh huh. I mean, I guess by today's standard, it's like people are doing so much fucking crazy shit out there. Maybe it's not that amazing, but I remember watching and going, damn, these guys are ballsy. Yeah, I, I just remember, I think I couldn't get past the, the body that they, their body that they, <laughs> they just had these pasty looking, like... Oh, wider than a bottle of Elmer's glue, I'm yeah, and, telling and you. So, and they were so out of shape, I just remember that, and I was like, man, they, <laughs> these guys aren't going to go that far. And it seemed like more territories used out-of-shape jobbers than others. I remember when I would watch WWF TV in the late 70s, uh-huh. when they would air it here in Los Angeles, it seems like they had a whole slew of jobbers who looked like they just never hit the gym. Then then again, they had some really good ones like Johnny yeah. Rods or Jose Estrada, who were you know, good wrestlers, good in good shape. But some of them, you just wondered, where, where did the cats come from? <laughs> And uh, the one thing I always I, I always noticed like Memphis always had this thing with um fat fat um, masked wrestlers chubby masked wrestlers for some reason. Yes, they they were like the kings of the generic masked wrestler. It seemed yeah. like you always had some oversized mat mask on an undersized body, <laughs> or like this really big chubby guy wearing a uh, 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 this mask that looked like 
it looked like it was cutting his breathing for, for some reason. <laughs> like yeah, the guy, yeah. you, you were or a full body suit. <laughs> yeah, and you're just hoping for this guy not to pass out during his match. Exactly. You hope he's going to make it. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that was the first one I remember. Mike Boyett was really the first jobber I remember where I was, like, rooting for him the whole time. And then he would just lose, and I'd be, like, crushed. Because you would see all these. They would give a shot to every other guy. Like, Jeff Rates would get a shot. I mean, Shane Douglas got pushed. But, I mean, you could tell he was going to get pushed at some point. But there were other guys who kind of started around that time. And Mike Boyett was always still a jobber the whole time. And that was yes, and I think Bill Watts was really clever uh, the way he booked the jobbers because you never knew what was going to happen. Yeah, He could get you thinking the jobbers were going to win, and then sometimes he would give somebody a little push. You never knew what to expect on Mid-South TV, which was, well, cause I he think, would always, was... He would always start like a young guy like that, like like Steve Cox. I remember that guy would lose all the time early, and then he started winning. I guess he got he got under some guy. I remember, I remember the story, but... Was in it? He got. He was under Steve Williams' uh, wing or something. Like he was like his coach. Or yes. Something. Yeah, and and then all of a sudden he started winning, and, he, and and you know then that led into being whatever he became down the road. He stopped being a jobber. That's pretty much all. Yeah, I remember Portland used to take their time bringing people up in the ranks because yeah. Matt Bourne wrestled, even though he was tough Tony Bourne's son. You know, Tony Bourne was a legend there in the Pacific Northwest. But they didn't just throw him in and give him a push. He was wrestling to 20-minute draws in the openers for quite some time uh, before he started getting you know, the, the tag straps. And I assume he eventually got the Northwest strap at some point, too. Uh, any calls on the line yet? Has, has Steve Sims called? No, we have no calls. Sims, are you out there? You've got to keep talking. You've got to remember all these guys. What, are you forgetting already? <laughs> I'm forgetting so, so much. No, actually, the, I, the one guy I gotta say, the one guy who I was always impressed with, and and the reason I'm bringing him up is because Carl Storm keeps keeps brought him up recently because he's still wrestling. Is on uh, Mike Jackson. That's the one guy loved I loved. Mike Jackson. He was like the one guy I always thought, man, this guy was really good, and at what he did, he was. A, he was and a he's one of those guys they would tease like he was going over a lot of the time. Yeah, because I mean, even usually when you would get a jobber wrestling a, a champion or something, you were like, oh, you know. It's over, but then it, you saw it with Mike Jackson. You were really, you're like, hey, at least this match is going to be good for a, the whatever, however long it's going to be. And yeah, there, it there was a lot of passion in him, especially for the casual viewer. I mean, even though I was you know thoroughly smartened up by the time I started watching him, he would have me feeling like a little kid again, saying, "Come yeah. on, pull it off." Even those times you knew he wasn't going over, you'd be wishing for him to. Uh... And, and it, <laughs> the funny thing. With Mike Jackson, didn't they always build him as, like, a junior heavyweight champion all the time? Yeah, and, and he never held it. I don't think he ever held Did he ever hold a junior heavyweight title? I don't know if he did, but it seemed like there were a lot of territories where they'd build somebody as the junior heavyweight champion, but then all he'd do is get jobbed. He'd never make a title defense. I think... I'm not certain, but I think Denny Brown in another territory was somebody that they would refer to as a junior heavyweight champ. And well, I remember like the NWA, like towards that time, around 87, 88, 89, when they had that title. I remember mm-hmm. like, guys, the guys who were actually challenging for that belt were always viewed. I always thought they were jobbers. Because like, I remember Gary Royal, um, yes. Nelson Royal, um, who else was there? Denny Brown. And Lasertron, <laughs> really, those were the four guys. <laughs> those were the four guys, and and the only reason I never thought Lasertron was a jobber is because he would always tag with Jimmy Valiant, or or he was 
Hector Guerrero, and I was like, Hector Guerrero's a pretty good wrestler. So. Lasertron and Jimmy Valiant are the worst tag team I've ever loved. <laughs> I was so <laughs> bummed when they stopped using them. I always got a kick out of their feud with the New Breed. Didn't they have like a brief feud with the New Breed? Like, they did. I thought it would have been great if if they brought them back to feud with the Ding Dongs. Yeah, like I, I always got a kick out of the future gimmick. Like the New Breed was from the future, and they were wearing like stuff from the eight, from the early eighties. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. I, oh God. Oh, yeah, they were they great. Should've, they should have had them like predict stuff, like towards like have them <laughs> predict wins, and somehow it would happen. And that would have been be sweet, it. actually. Yeah, See, they, there's a place for everybody. I always thought they were pretty good, the new breed. Then they started jobbing them out towards the end. As will happen in this business, as will Didn't happen. Did they break up, though? They broke up, didn't they? That I'm a little vague on. Yeah, in fact, I'm know. quite vague on that, i got to tell you. I know Chris Champion, I think, still Russell, doesn't he? <laughs> does he? <laughs> yeah, Yoshi, yeah, I, he no, I, I'm not sure if he does or not. He was Yoshi Kwan, wasn't he? Chris Champion was Yoshi Kwan, wasn't he? I don't know. You don't gotta, know like, I, who's that? <laughs> I've got to plead ignorance here. <laughs> like, who's that? Kurt, you're obviously not a WCW fan like I was. No, this is true. This is true. I could probably name all of the uh, jobbers that I watched when I was 10 years old back in 1972, but you asked me who I saw three weeks ago. I'm like, what? Uh, by the way, I, w- I want to say we got a decent amount of response when I posted on the site Kayfabe Memories that we are going to be doing this Jobber Palooza tribute show. And I just want to thank some of the people who gave feedback on what Jobbers had like to cover. And we actually got enough feedback where if I just started naming off all the Jobbers that would take up most of the show. Yeah, we could probably just rem- you, you could probably just do that and we could remember. Some That's other. right. Well, yeah, I, want to, I want to give a thanks to the poster SignGuy77 who strung up this list here. Iron Mike Sharp, Todd yeah. Becker, Barry Horowitz, you know, Lee Iron Scott. Mike Sharp, before you, wasn't he like the, he was one of those guys you always wondered if he would be a, like, you know, like, they always put him, like, towards the bottom of contenders or something. Like, whenever there was, like, some title. Did you ever know he was that? an interesting, he was an interesting jobber because. They always put him, like, in the intercontinental title mix. I always remember, like, they would always, like, make a reference towards him being, like, towards the bottom of the list. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, well, it was funny because even though he was pretty much a jobber by the mid-80s, yeah. he looked out of place as a jobber even though he really lacked any kind of charisma. He looked so big and powerful, yeah. and you'd, you know, no matter how much you used your imagination, you'd look at him and say, he, he could flatten half the people here. Yeah, and somehow he always lost. <laughs> yeah, to everybody. <laughs> That's the one thing I always remember about WWF that, at that time. Like, for some reason, I would remember they, they would always talk bit, make him sound like he was, like, a big deal. And every single week he would lose, and I was like, great, this guy really sucks. Why are they talking about him? Like, <laughs> why are they giving him this much time, you know? Yeah, I remember they gave him a little bit of a push in Mid-South, nothing huge. Yeah. Um, you know, the funniest thing I always heard about Mike Sharp was apparently he had quite the cleanliness fetish. He hated being dirty. Oh, okay. And yeah, apparently, that, apparently he would take a long time showering after each show. <laughs> he obviously entered the right business. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now, if you can survive the wrestling business without giving, getting without, some uh, terrible staff infection that debilitates you, then you're one tough fucker. Uh, considering we don't hear any stories about him having any anxiety attacks. No, nah, but I bet you there's plenty of those in the wrestling business. Yeah, I mean, yeah, germaphobes. When I think of when I think of jobbers, uh-huh. 
for some reason, this always sticks out in my mind is when they started airing WWF TV here in Los Angeles in 1983. One week, they have Sergeant Slaughter doing his annual, his weekly squash match with the Grand Wizard by his side. And that was back when we all started, like, when VCRs were like a luxury. And it was like, wow, we have a VCR, so let's tape everything you ever watch on TV. And one week, he wrestles this jobber by the name of Paul Fisher. And the only reason I remember Paul Fisher is because I watched this match over and over again because I kept thinking to myself, this poor kid, why did they even let him in the ring? This guy was as white as the Mulkey brothers, <laughs> had a bad mustache, wh- or what passed as a the, mustache. The, 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 was it the porn stash? No, it? he tried, but it looked oh. like peach fuzz. Oh, and he like, had it was a teenage. It was a teenager peach fuzz. He had terrible posture, oh. and when Slaughter clotheslined him, no matter how many times I watched it, I said, oh my gosh, that kid's going to be hurting forever. And even Vince McMahon, when, when he was commentating, started cracking up in the middle of it. And he even made the mention, well, Paul Fisher had a concave chest to begin with. Oh, God. <laughs> and I remember I, would sh- I, I thought, wait, is it just me? And I'd show this match to my friends, and all my friends would say, let's watch that again. We've got to see that again. It was... Easily the worst jobber I ever saw, and the most comical time I saw somebody getting slaughtered by Sergeant Slaughter. It, 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 when he put the Cobra Clutch on this kid after about 30 seconds of brutality, it almost looked like Sergeant Slaughter was too big a guy to put a Cobra Clutch on this kid. He was so, he was so just gone. You guys felt bad for him afterwards. <laughs> I did, I did. Oh, God, poor guy. I, I know, I, and there's, I always there's thought... Always that one, there's always that one jobber that... I mean, but I mean, it, it kind of changed towards the end where, where you started getting jobbers who didn't have that body. But remember back in the day, like in the 80s, there was always a ton of those guys that just looked like... You were like, how did this guy go... Did this guy to wrestling school or something? I agree. Well, uh, same with uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling. Uh-huh. Some of their jobbers looked like they just you know, got out of rehab or just woke up on their back porch, you know, got on their overalls and said, I think I'll go be me a wrestler. Or they just got back inside from smoke, from getting done smoking or something. Uh, yeah, exactly, yes, yes. I, in fact, I even think I might have saved a tape of, you know, remember Alex Perez? Um, was that, who was that? Al Perez or? Al Perez, yeah. Uh-huh. He did this really bad matador gimmick in Southwest Championship Wrestling, but... He wrestled some guy who looked like he must have been 100 years old and you know, had a gut out to here. And on top of that, the guy could not work. It's like every time Perez would go to take him down, he'd just kind of fall on his side. I can't remember what the guy's name was, but it was the only time I ever saw him. Same with this cat, Paul Fisher, who got destroyed by Sergeant Slaughter. That was the only time I ever saw him work. And... <laughs> I always wonder whatever happened to that poor lad. You always remember that one guy who just looked. I mean, those are those are the memories you always keep. The 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 one guy who just he just got beat up really bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, yeah. You might only see them once or twice, but they stick out in your mind. Yeah, I, I mean, the one thing I always remember was like when the guy when some guy would pop up from from one place to the other. Like, remember Scott Casey? 
He was like in Scott Casey. Class. Now he was a big guy. Yeah, he was like in Southwest and then in World Class, and then he was in W. I remember when he went to WWF, and I thought, wow, Scott Casey's there. He's pretty. He was pretty. He, he used to win a lot in uh, World Class and all the, and, and then all of a sudden he starts losing. I'm like, what the hell's happening to Scott Casey? But they, 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 that's when they switched over to jobbers being like the, like these, competitive type of guys. You know, like Scott Casey. I, I think Al Perez would job every so often, like for like a month that he was there. This is true. Another, one of the most unusual sights for somebody like me to see was uh, they were doing tapings out of Florida once in the mid-'80s, uh-huh. and facing Coco Beware was Raul Mata, Wow. who did like a one-minute squash job to Coco Beware, and <laughs> nobody in the arena knew who he was, but that was one of my heroes when I was a little kid. I mean, uh, he had the Pacific Championship, Pacific Coast Championship here when I, in L.A. when I was a kid, uh, World Light Heavyweight Champion in Mexico, Tag Team Champion with several different partners here in Los Angeles. So it was rather surreal seeing him get squashed so decisively. I will say he did the best, the best squash of the show. <laughs> did he do the Birdman afterwards? Oh, he must have. <laughs> How could yeah, he not? There's another guy, Coco Beware. You know, it's funny because I remember the first, when I saw him, he was already doing, he was in WWF at the time. He was, doing, um, he, he was with Bird and all that stuff. And, and then you start watching videos of him when he was in Memphis. And you're like, this guy's pretty good, you know? That, that's the other thing that always amazed me, how bad the guy... You, I think the way they... I don't know, it's just like the way they educate you into thinking that this guy is worse than what he really is. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, that's what always happened with jobbers. That's always, true. That's true. You always, you always viewed them as being worse than the guy that they were actually losing to. Oh, totally. In never, fact, that was the case often whenever I'd watch Johnny Rods in WWF. There yeah. was a hell of a worker, and I guess a hell of a shooter, too. Yeah, And, and yeah. half the time he's doing a job to somebody that he was outworking like crazy. And, of course, I was young. You know, when I first started watching him, I was probably 13 or 14, and I kept thinking to myself, what's wrong with this picture? This guy looks like he could run circles around his opponent, you know, before you under, you know, before I even knew what a jobber was and you understand the purpose of it. Did you ever see that guy, Zan Panzer? I never saw Zan Panzer. You never saw Zan Panzer? I never saw Zan Panzer. Oh my god, dude, he used to wear he he you would have loved him. He wore per, he wore pink. <laughs> no way. Pink. Now, was this in the 1980s? Like I think it was towards the late 1980s, early 1990s. Was that guy um I think it was Brad Anderson or something like that? How was he as a worker? I can't remember. I, I mean, I wasn't into the whole work. You know, I was more of a just a fan. You know, but that was my that was back when I was a fan. You know, but I, I just remember him coming in and, and just you know the I think the announcer back then was Dave Penzer. Wasn't it Dave Penzer doing the WCW announcing? I don't recall uh, that announcer. The, the ring announcing. Remember the ring announcing? So Dave Penzer was introducing Zan Penzer. Yeah. Yeah, and that I, almost sounds like a tongue twister. Yeah, and I always got a kick out of out of the way, or or that one guy. What was that guy? Oh, there was this one dude who had this weird name in the in the in the early nineties. I can't remember in WCW the ring announcer. God, there was this one guy, and he always he always made it. He made the the name. He always goes Zen Panzer. You're not thinking of Gary Michael Capetta, are you? No, not that guy. There was another guy. Like I'm, I can't remember the guy's name. I'm pretty sure who are some. Some caller is going to figure it out and call it. <laughs> <laughs> or somebody's going to email it. We're begging people to call in. <laughs> we're, 
we're, we're, we're probably going to have to start doing this show taped at some point. That's right. Just because I really hate doing the whole begging people to call in, and we could just do a tape, and it'd be so much easier. I don't mind looking pathetic. You know, <laughs> hey, I'll be the jobber of the podcast world. You know, you know, the, the fun, but anyway, the, the, guy who, the guy who did it, he always made a point of, like, the, the way he would say it, it sounded so, like, oh, you, it brought hope to you. Like, oh, my God, it's like, you know, Van Panzer, here you go. Like, just the way he said the guy's name gives yeah, the like guy he, a little bit of glory. Like, you were excited to see him wrestle, and all of a sudden you lose, and you're like, crap, this guy's I could, In fact, that's funny you point that out, because when I grew up, we had the greatest ring announcer ever known to the Western world, and that was Jimmy Lennon. Uh-huh. And he did the same thing with the jobbers here. And I remember it like it was yesterday when Bengali would uh, be introduced. Uh, Jimmy Lennon would say, Some know him as El Muchacho de Zacatecas, but we know him as Bengali. See, that's, see and in the 80s, wasn't it always they would do um, Bill Smith? And that was it. You're oh, yeah. In fact, sometimes they didn't introduce the jobbers. There yeah, was a while they're... in Georgia TV where you just saw some nameless soul in the corner, and they would say, well, here's the Iron Sheik, and he's squashing, like you say, Bill Smith. <laughs> yeah, and, and like towards the end, they would, you might hear like his last name, <laughs> or like, the, oh, dear Lord, or something. And, that was and there were some times even where you could tell that they weren't given the jobber's name, and they would just say he is... Uh, he is pouncing upon his foe. Um, but Jimmy Lennon, no matter how bad the jobber was, Jimmy George Lennon George gave them an introduction. See, that's cool. That, that that, that's something I would have enjoyed. We had another jobber here who's, who was a masked man called Texas. And his, he had one of the coolest masks. It was Wait, a mask with the map of Texas on the face. And his name was Texas. His name was Texas. But the way Jimmy Lennon would say it, um, you know, here is the man, you know where he's from. He says, you can just call me Texas. Oh, see, that's a cool intro right there. Yeah, Jimmy Lennon, nobody anywhere. Oh, Kurt, we got a caller. We have a caller. Who's there? Who's there? Caller, How who's come there? there's a delay on the Internet when I call you guys? My God, it's the Dr. Lucha. Yeah. We have no I'm listening. I'm listening to you on the radio, and it's not the same... It's not the same... Speedos on the internet. And what's this with Georgia jobbers? I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I know Georgia jobbers. Educate us. Help us out. You got to save us. The scary thing is, is that those guys were actually the most fun. Some of the most fun guys to cheer. I mean, when I was growing up in the mid '60s, they bring in Oki Shakina as a jobber. Oh my lord, Oki Shakina, who was on top other places. He, yeah, he was on top most every other place he went to. But Paul Jones, the promoter in Atlanta, had such a thing about masked guys and, and foreigners that he just he, he couldn't be stopped. He, just, he, <laughs> he, he would even bring in foreigners as his jobbers. Wow. That, wow, he went through a lot of trouble just to show that foreigners are nothing more than jobbers. <laughs> yeah, well, and he, I mean, he had guys. I mean, he, he would have guys under masks. I mean, he used Corsica Joe as a jobber a lot. Corsica Joe was one of those guys who was a jobber in quite a few territories, wasn't he? Yeah, he kept coming back and coming back, and one time he wore a mask and got unmasked on TV, and it was, it was Corsica Joe, and it was, it, it was, it was the sixth or the seventh time, I'm guessing, by the time this, this particular angle had happened, that he had been a jobber through the territory. That's amazing. Of course, when you're eight, 
when you're eight or nine and ten years old, you don't realize the whole scoop of, of what these guys are doing. You just realize that guy on the other side of the ring isn't going to even get in any offense. Exactly. You just you just knew within watching for a month or two that this guy's gone. He looks cooler than the guy across the ring from him, but he's he's going to be looking at the lights tonight. Yeah. So all we got from OK Shakina was the nerve the claw the nerve claw. <laughs> now, Steve, was there a jobber that you had a particular fondness for? Who, when you were a child, you just kept, you know. Well, he was kind of like the. Uh, every territory had one of these guys. He was kind of like the king of the jobbers, and he was like, um, on rare occasions, he'd actually get to win a match against guys lower on the scale than him. But Big Bill Dromo was my favorite. Bill Dromo was a good worker. I actually got to see him a few times live. I also like Klondike Bill and Bull Ramos when they brought them in. In our territory, in Georgia, they didn't stay very long, so they weren't treated very highly because they weren't going to get a push. Both of them, I remember, did three second jobs to world champions. One to Kniska. Bull Ramos, of all people. Yeah, once, once to Kniska. Klondike Bill to Kaniski and Bull Ramos to Dory Funk Jr., the Kaniski one was because Kaniski got hurt earlier in the week, and it was all he could do just to make the make the Friday night card. Yeah, I, I remember that happening on a number of occasions in the LaBelle territory. Par- particularly, several wrestlers got some weird eye infection where they couldn't see three feet in front of them, and so they were doing three-second jobs for a couple of nights. <laughs> wow, did they get some kind of white powder thrown in their eyes? <laughs> Mom sells powder. That's the leading cause of eye infections here in Southern California. Anyway, I, you guys have been asking for somebody to call in, and I couldn't make it last week. And I want you to know this week I made it in spite of the fact that I was almost tempted away by the fact that there was no line at Phil's Barbecue tonight. Uh, no line at Bill's Barbecue? Is this a San Phil's, Diego phenomenon, my friend? Phil's Barbecue is like the San Diego phenomenon. It normally has lines at like 3 in the morning for waiting when it opens up at 11. Oh, good Lord. It sounds like the type of place you would see Tom Waits smoking a cigarette outside of. Yuppies. It's all yuppies. It's, it's, oh, it's yuppies. Goofy, it's the yuppie joint, huh? The goofy kind of thing, but the reason, there was a technical reason behind that. There was a major accident on the freeway exit on, on the 5, and the, the, the entire area was empty of traffic when I went by. Lord. But, now, hey, please. I gave up Phil's Barbecue for you guys. Oh, now, yeah. we feel honored. So, Bill's Barbecue deserves a plug. Well, it it did the job tonight. Now, Steve, by chance, did you watch uh, Georgia wrestling during the Ann Gunkel era? I, I did. I, I certainly did. That was actually that was one of the rare times that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which at that time was two different newspapers, covered professional wrestling. Really? Wow. Yes, they actually covered it because the legitimate story was fascinating. In, 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 as a business story, it was a fascinating story. Wow, that would actually be something that would be uh, worth it didn't get. It didn't get a lot. I mean, it got, like, on page six, it got one or two paragraphs. I mean, it was not covered like it was, you know, the, the next com- Hank Aaron going after home run 715. But it did God, get yeah. some, co- some coverage, and considering the fact that the in 71 or 72, they changed sports editors, and until that time, every Saturday morning, they would run the results of the Friday night card. Interesting. At the city auditorium, and then the guy stopped. And about six months after that, the Gunkel split happened. One of the funny things was was that 
they would the promoter or somebody in the promoter's office who it used to be Leo Garibaldi, but I forget who would call in the results before the match happens. Uh huh. And sure enough, somewhere around 1968, one of the matches didn't eat, some somebody no showed, even though they, Leo Garibaldi had thought or whoever was calling it in thought he was there, and That's the match fun. actually didn't happen the way it was supposed to be, and the. Journal Constitution <laughs> read them the riot act and said, if that ever happens again, there's no more results in Saturday's paper. That happened on a regular basis here in L.A. in the, LaBelle, the later LaBelle days because they would tape all their promos three weeks ahead of time, and so many people left the territory. So you get a plug for a match uh, coming this Friday night, but the only problem was both wrestlers took a hike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, well, that, that could still happen. Oh, easily. Now, one of the reasons I brought up Ann Gunkel was I know some wrestlers uh, went with Ann Gunkel, others went with her opposition. Was there anybody who got an elevated push who went for, from being a mid-carder or a jobber uh, to getting a bigger push, or vice versa, where they started getting jobbed out? The one I remember was Bob Armstrong, because up until that time, he was kind of the local boy made good that was always mid-card, Never really got, this was the same bullet, Bob, that was legendary later, who was well, always built in phenomenal shape. The, the fireman from Marietta. Ah, yes. And, and he, he, would, he, he, I mean, he would go weeks without even appearing on the show, and then he would come back, and he, was, he would be a, the level above Bill Tromo and, and well below the main eventers. I now, looking back at it, would presume that was the case because they they never knew that they were going to have him regularly to push programs with him. So promoters just you know wouldn't wouldn't be any sense to push him too hard. But he he, he won a lot on TV. But in '72, he was like main events or se- or a second from the top oh, wow. almost that's, immediately. That's when things really started happening for him. It, yeah, it it did. And from, at that point, his pay increased. Sufficiently that I don't think he dropped being a firefighter, but he started making TV every week for like the next twenty years or twenty-five years. Uh, he went to being one of the regional, uh, you know, most recognized regional names in, by the eighties. He did, and of course, he had kids who became famous. And the, the arms at, at the time, both and this is really, really going back into guys, and I'm not sure people listening to the broadcast will even remember, but. Huh. Um, before there was Carl Robert Par- Parker, there were the Fuller Brothers. And the yeah, Fuller Brothers in, in Atlanta in the se- in the 70s, when Gunkel's promotion split out, were really just um, Lester Welch's kids. They were just Buddy Fuller's kids. I remember them getting a lot of ink in the after mags. Well, they yeah they did. They were you know good looking young kids at the time, but I, I, they were very raw in the ring. And Buddy Fuller was from the Nick Goulas and and the the whole Welch family school of promotions is is that you know <laughs> you never made you never made money fairly. The family got pushed to the stars. <laughs> well, yes, they pushed themselves to the stars, but they just as soon run 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 uh, anybody who was helping to fund a promotion and run them out of business in a month and soak all the money they could out of them rather than keep it going for a while. And, and, but but they got a big push. They got a push up the card in '72, even though they were kind of like the old Devon Air kids in '87 or '88. They were now, just they were just starting to have their bodies fill out and become much uh, 
you know, much, much more pushable where, where fans would actually buy him in the ring. Of course, we had a territory where the promoter was always the biggest guy in the entire circuit. Which is Paul, Jones was a, Paul Jones was the, the wrestler before he became the promoter in Atlanta was like 6'2", 6'3", 230, which in 20s and 30s, that was huge. Yeah, he was. I remember seeing him at the Georgia Wrestling Fans Convention in 1980, and he was like, well, "Man, he looked like he was in his 90s at the time." But yeah, oh yeah, he he aged prematurely, and his ears and his whole face looked like he had been in nightly fights for 50 years. Yeah, but he was a big dude. I remember standing next to him and just saying, "You know, he's very old looking, but boy, he's he's still." Pretty rugged looking. <laughs> it was it was funny because until they brought in Ernie Ladd and I think Blackjack Mulligan and maybe even I'm trying to remember who they brought in before that, but that might have been it. He would always do an angle where when the when the heel was running wild and needed suspending or punishment, he would just come out and stand next to them, and he wouldn't say anything. He would just issue the the punishment and quietly walk away, and just the visual of him towering over his number one heel at the time was sufficient to get the point across to the fans. Yeah, that could be intimidating enough. <laughs> um, one of a, a friend of mine who was a jobber in most territories but got a bit of a push for man gunkle was Wild Man Jack Armstrong, who uh, was doing the Wild Man gimmick. And I guess on TV one week, he went and started... Uh, wailing his head on all the turn the turnbuckles and the posts of the ring and gigged himself. Yeah, I, I have heard that, and, of course, the TV stations back then didn't like blood. If I remember correctly, this was about the time when it was leaving network TV where it had a 6 p.m. Saturday night slot on the ABC network affiliate. And was um, because I, in part it could have been because of this split and because of... of um, a, ch- a change in management at the at the ABC affiliate. They wanted to be a little more upscale and was going on to uh, UHF TV. Yeah, and they instructed him not to be a wild man after that angle, and I guess that, <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of his push. <laughs> hey, this is my first time speaking to Fredo. Fredo, how are you? I'm doing great. What, how's it going? We should you're, have you on You sound much better. I, I got to say, your, your voice level sounds much better over the phone here. Uh-huh. I know that's what Kurt was telling me that it sounded really low on the on the when you heard it, but I was like, I don't know, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on with the with the podcast. I think it's the it's the system or whatever they're using. And we just got you to to turn your voice from 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 a peaceful voice to a booming wrestling voice. Yeah, we gotta we gotta get Steve on for a full lucha show. That would be wonderful. Would, would you be up for that, Steve? I I would I would be I would be glad to do it. Yeah, I would be. We have to get. I would be. Oh no! Go ahead. Uh, we have to get Kurt up to date on lucha nowadays because he's way behind on a lot of the stuff. He refuses to watch anything other than Negro Casas. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I understand. That's so why I said of the Negro Casas links, which is a good thing to watch because yeah. Negro Casas is having a year that a, a, an excellent year for somebody who's forty eight. And I am been in still, the, That's what the blew me away. For, for thirty you, years, he can he can still do incredible stuff. He should be just beaten up and... He blows my mind. I, I was expecting to see a shell of him, himself when I started watching again about a month back. And he, he is going like it's nobody's business. I, he has the fountain of youth within him. And he is. I, I understand he's doing more because it's TV and it's more because 
they expect him to be in the main event program in September. So he's 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 deliberately sacrificing a couple of years off the back end to get one more run at the top. And that's but what he, I and he he's so so well what to do. He's true old school because I remember back when I was starting to uh, learn to work in the early '80s. You know, people like Ed Moretti saying, "Don't blow your load every night. You know, save what you want to save for TV." Do what you have to do to get over, but you know, don't take every bump in the book. You know, save it for when you need it. You know, yes, you shoot your money when it's time. One of the earliest, one of the earliest things I ever heard in the business that was inside the business, which isn't really inside the business. It's true about a lot of businesses. Is look, we're not trying to put out on an opera every night. Exactly. Every once in a while, you'll be called to show that you can be the best in the business, but otherwise. You're just entertaining. Just entertain them. That's yeah. the best way to put it. You're you're here to entertain them to get over. Not every match has to be a five star yeah. match. I'll have to test you, Fredo. Uh-huh. Can you complete? This was the very first thing I ever heard inside wrestling. When when and I could tell you a longer story about it. First first inside wrestling lingo I ever heard. Uh-huh. I'm going to ask Fredo because I bet Kurt's heard this before. Complete the phrase: masked men blank. I don't know. This is, this is a 60s way of thinking. Oh, my God. I'm going to think mass men job? <laughs> no. Mass men don't get laid. Mass men, <laughs> men don't get laid. It, was, it, it came up, I think, in relation with, with having um, one of the infernos was uh, hurt and had an appendectomy, and my dad was in the emergency room. And after the operation, they were all talking about it. And he said he hated wearing a mask because mask men don't get laid. <laughs> Funny. That wasn't true here in Southern California, though. <laughs> the rest it were known as... It would kill Lucha Libre, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would kill Lucha Libre. Oh, my God. I, I remember who was the masked midget wrestler in the early 80s. I know he got some action, and he didn't take his mask off either. Well, that's because the char- the char- he was strong enough in his character... By the way, have you guys talked about the prostitutes in Mexico City yet? No, we haven't talked about that. No, what is oh, no, what yeah, beautiful, what beautiful women? I must go. I must go down to Mexico City now to find these women myself. Oh, are you talking about the police sketches? Yeah, did you see that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh my lord! The those are not. Those are not prostitutes. Those are secretaries at a hotel that are. They just doll them up so they can drag the guys to their room and knock them out. Steve, are those women? Like they may not even be women. Because I, I was telling Kurt, I don't think, I don't think those were all, women. I was think the, they make they make Scorpio look like Cinderella. Yeah, the the latest news is the police believe those are the the receptionists at the hotel. Oh, which which, which is devolves into the story of why the hotel is so anxious to blur up the videotape so nobody can actually see the prostitutes leaving. Oh my there. lord. Uh, I don't mean to make light of this, but this sounds like the plot of, like, uh, you know, a Miami CSI or something. Well, Kurt going to be a CSI great. This is going to be a great made-for-TV movie. Yeah. Who's going to portray uh, Parkita? <laughs> Again, I hate to make light of it, but this is just just when you think you've heard the strangest real-life wrestling story, another one happens. This one just takes over. This well. Week. The funny thing is because I read the Mexican, I have read Mexican newspapers for 20 years searching for lucha and other things. I've actually seen this story happen over the last few years. 
you know, to regular people. This is this is a relatively I wouldn't say common, but this this is hardly an unusual scam. This is a very typical scam, and a lot of times they do it to foreigners. Interesting. Now, are you talking about a scam mainly out of Mexico, or is this something? Yeah, the scam out of Mexico. Just, just, just you know, lure them back to the hotel room, knock them out with the drinks, and rob them, and that's all. Not kill, not anything, just just for robberies. But so it looks like this was an accidental overdose they did on these cats then. Well, that's a theory that the police, that's a theory they're floating, but they don't know about that either. Wow, that's frightening. But how, dr- <laughs> how drunk were they to actually get with those women, you know? Well, <laughs> that, that's nobody's, nobody seems to know, but I mean, I mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but occasionally, sometimes Mexican wrestlers use substances besides just, you know, Coca-Cola and coffee. So if you get doped <laughs> up unwillingly, it might be what just turns the lights off, sadly. Yeah, I mean, it might have been the fact that the stuff they took was in reaction to all the other stuff they've been taking the last 24 hours. Interesting. Interesting. Steve, I was going to ask you about that AAA, the new deal that they're coming up with. What is that? What have you heard about the... The new deal to make Billy Boy actually work in the second match instead of the first? No, you know you know the cookie jar. Oh, the dang. Whole, the cookie jar relationship. Yeah, strawberry shortcake, Collins, AAA. I know now. Now it's going to be strawberry shortcake and doodle bop. I guess. <laughs> doodle bop. That's good. <laughs> How soon do the doodle bop debut in AAA? Will they? Sadly, be- Billy Boy will probably have to do a job to them too. <laughs> Wait, just the way you guys have been talking in the last five sentences makes me want to watch AAA now. This sounds like a Pokemon episode on LSD. What What happened, Kurt? Is there is the the licensing company that owns Strawberry Shortcake has something to do with Arthur, although they don't own the Arthur character. And um, a couple of other, you know, infants, not children's, but infants um, uh, TV shows has bought the rights to broadcast AAA in English in the U.S. and do merchandise their gimmicks. Oh, this is too cool. Oh, this this gives hope. This gives hope to the United States of America, man. I don't know. Can you imagine a zombie strawberry shortcake? Yes. That would be the (laughs) coolest thing in the world. Just the mix. A little thing. strawberry shortcake. Did you ever read? Did you ever uh, read my essay about uh, "Let's Run in the Rain"? I don't recall it. No. Oh my God. Okay. I don't know is if it's it still. Okay. Still I will. I will repost it on standtheembryo.com because it makes mention of strawberry shortcake and somehow tying it in with uh, the undead. <laughs> This is beautiful. This would be the greatest thing. That would be in your face, ECW. You don't have a zombie anymore, but AAA will have a zombie. Better yet, a small strawberry shortcake zombie who eats the entrails of the living. AAA can have Dr. Claw, too. So This is cool. Well, not only that, but she'll do a 450 splash off the rope to beat you, too. Damn, this is... It's like I said when when I disco- when I discovered the Peste Negra gimmick a few weeks ago, I I felt as amazed as Dr. Jerry Graham did the night in 1982 when he learned about the existence of Gumby and Pokey. I was blown away. This is beautiful. Well, I don't know. Learning about Gumby and Pokey is a monumental existence in every life. I don't know if we can compare it to that. It was, it was amazing. A, 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 a little a prophet in the backseat who had been drinking heavily started gleefully talking about how much he loved Gumby and Pokey, and Dr. Jerry Graham just gazed at him for the longest time and then started muttering, 
oh, kid, you know the fucking truth. This is amazing. <laughs> and he looked at us and in all seriousness said, all night long this kid has been prophesizing and prophesying and and you think he's got to stop and, oh, my God, Gumby. And that's how I feel when you're telling me about, oh, Lucha Libre rules. Correct. This is why CML is the longest-lasting wrestling promotion in existence. Kurt, but wait, you still haven't, you haven't asked Steve the important question. What question is that? What's how, like how, how many minutes do we have left on the podcast? <laughs> no, what, what's going to happen between Gato Everetti and Tintinella? That's right. Yes. Do you know the scoop, Steve? Oh, Gato only likes him as a friend. Oh. He's, Why haven't he's we heard got, that catchphrase, though? She you know, said to go back to Fabi and, and find the right words to use to tell him that he only wants to be friends. You know, the, the best thing is Fabi Apache giving advice to the whole thing. I think that's, that's the best part. <laughs> the, the whole show is built around that whole thing. That's, it, oh, yeah. my God. Can you imagine if Pimpinela and Gato had a baby together? Oh, God. That would, yes, that would be something, yes. They should, <laughs> should have a picture. I think you know how you could do all those su- superimposed type of pictures type of things. It would be uh, weirder than the Energizer Bunny and Strawberry Shortcake Zombie having a baby. <laughs> I see so many possibilities. I think Martin Carvagan is smiling from the stars above. Gee, and I, I was just putting, I was putting down this whole deal like earlier today. And now I, you guys have opened the the mic. Oh, you can you can put it down because in real life neither neither side has even any clue about what the other side's all about, so it, it won't work. Well, that, oh, dudes, we should be booking. I was telling someone that they, they were really excited about it on the internet. And I'm like, they don't probably even know. I don't think does Televisa even know what's going on. Does AAA even know? I mean, I think only the whoever the Lucha Libre USA guy is the only one that actually knows what's going on. Yeah, I, I did find it strange that neither press release quoted the other the other side in its press release. I know. That's the uh, that's the whole point of the whole. Story. Wow, that, but the concept, I'm telling you, this is amazing. I, I wow. Well, if, if, the funny thing is, if Pena were alive and you and he were listening to this, he'd run with it. Yeah, I, oh, he'd, let's, he'd let's, run let's with any it. anything if it hadn't been tried before. Well, let's hope that hallucinatory minds prevail in this case. You could bring back those ice creams and all those characters, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, you know the ice cream at least. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, maybe Paulina Cardigan and Kevin Sullivan need booking jobs, and they could take them over and, uh, you know, have them put their heads together. Wouldn't that be a mix? Well, the, the, the topic tonight was was jobbers. Did you guys ever decide who before before I called in who the greatest jobber was you'd ever seen? My well, personal favorite. The the, <laughs> I haven't mentioned I haven't mentioned my two favorites from the early '90s, both of whom I had the pleasure of meeting: Lee Scott and Dwayne Bruce, the Lee, sergeant. Another good one. Oh, good lord! I, I have to uh, I have to confess Lee, ignorance to these two. Lee, Lee, they both worked WCW. They ran the circuit and TV taping, so they would do the jobs. You know, Sid Vicious would would pick them up, carry them to the edge of the the ring, and then just drop them over the top rope all the way to the floor. Oh, good lord, good lord! Which in eighty, which in eighty nine was quite the bump. In fact, Lee but, Scott is one uh, is one of the cats that uh, Sign Guy seventy seven on Kayfabe Memories has mentioned. So, got to give yeah, him a salutation. Lee Scott always got killed in his, every show too. His full time job was a stunt worker, and he got 
full-time work at it, and he left the wrestling business behind just to do movie stunts. Probably safer doing stunt work than wrestling Sid Vicious. Didn't he stunt referee for a while, too? He, he might have. I, at, towards the end, he was, you know, he was just filling up dates and stuff, but I know that's why he did, eventually disappeared from the scene. I have no idea what happened to the sergeant, Dwayne Bruce. My personal favorites of all time are still the ones from my childhood. Uh, Brother Joseph and Brother Jerome from Big Sur, California, the Peace Brothers, the Wrestling Hippies. But did you did you ever wonder if they would beat the Malkies, the 13th ranked contender, to the National Tag Team Championships? <laughs> I was hoping they would come out of retirement for that. I was hoping they'd be in the Crockett Cup. They'd never no. beat the Malkies. Oh. There were some there were some good jobbers in world class too. George Weingaroff, the one eyed wrestler. <laughs> oh, George, that's right, Saul Weingaroff's kid, and they would always make a big they well, they always said he was legally blind, but um I heard that it was the equivalent of being very nearsighted or something like that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and Scott then, Casey. Japan has uh, the archetype of Jobber Forever, who probably has never won a match, and that is Stalker Ichikawa. Ichikawa. Yeah, there you go. Probably the best King of Jobbers. I would be so honored if he ever came to the United States again. I would love to be the first person to put him over. I would have him beat the Psycho Circus single-handedly and end their streak. (laughs) Oh, that would be sweet, too. Dr. Ichika was so cool. He did a, a job to uh, uh, the promoter's cat on a show recently. Bart Kapitsky's cat. That's, that's, that's doing a job. Yeah, I'd do a job for a cat. Not just got away ever ready. I don't think we'll ever see Psycho Circus lose. I think that's just going to keep going forever. Some sort of eternal punishment, <laughs> I guess. It's our punishment. It's our punishment for, for Pena dying, you know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, who, who could they lose to that it would actually mean something? Yeah, they've I mean, been booked, booked so horribly. Yeah. I yeah, mean, talk I, about I, having a winning streak that doesn't quite translate. Like Degeneration Mech never really did anything. I mean, I can't really. I mean, I don't even, is Rocky Romero still there? You know, he's he's rarely like shown on their shows for some reason. That's yes, he's barely there. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just rarely there. Well, it looks like our time is winding up, and Steve, Dr. Lucha Sims, I want to thank you so much for calling in. This was quite a treat, and we look forward to doing an episode, a full episode with you very soon. Your wish was my command. I heard you guys talking at the very end last week, and then when you said call in again this week, I said, I'll call in. God bless you. You rock. You totally I'm so glad to have you be one of us. This time I wasn't on hold for eight minutes. (laughs) <laughs> you were on. Hey, blame Kurt. Blame Kurt. The, blame Kurt on that one. He's the one that forced, had me switch over to another website and look through. <laughs> oh, I, I had you looking at the at the five minutes to live video website. Yeah, and I was busy looking at that. And I, I, I switched over the switchboard. A website everybody should go for because they even include That's such sweet. cool films on their site like Spider Baby and and Scorpio Rising and Dolomite and and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um. Do you have any good Kurt Kurt Angle simulated sex movies? (laughs) Wait a minute. We're not going to go off the air quite yet. Uh, What's this? Oh, we don't have to go off the air, Kurt. Yeah, I know. I know we don't have to go off the air, but I I was thinking, let's just keep it to an hour, but wait a minute. Kurt Angle simulated sex. Simulated. Well, yes. I I presume it's simulated. If it's not simulated, then please tell me before I I spend any money on it. I don't even know the story no, behind this. No, no, wait. Frito, you go. 
I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm shocked. I'm in shock right now. Yeah, what no, is this all about? Tell us about this. He's, he's filmed this. He's filmed a serial killer. He's filmed a serial killer movie, and the first scene of it is he kills the girl while he's screwing her from behind and puts his hands over her nose and mouth and just chokes her to death while he's screwing her. Oh, great. Oh, yes, our American he, hero. He has all sorts of fun, apparently funny faces and uh, funny lines, that both of which are entirely disgusting in this opening scene. This movie will be available on DVD by when, will it? <laughs> Friday? <laughs> will it on, on DVD or, or Netflix? <laughs> or you could go to Five Minutes to Live Video. That's, that's exactly you could get Blue Demon and the Seductresses from 1969. Will, will this be available in that uh, that one pack where they have like 50 DVDs for like a dollar or something? You know, like I, I I wouldn't be shocked. The Span the, that Spanish um the Spanish movies. Yeah, the Spanish I, movies. Like, oh, here's another Spanish movie, The Castle of the Mummies of Guanajuato, starring that wonderful luchador Superson. There you go. <laughs> Super sorry. Hey, as long as it's got Lorraine Velasquez in it, I'm, I'm up for it. Uh, yeah, amen to that. Re remember when she appeared about 20 years back in that uh, tribute to the Santo films? She was still I, looked I pretty do. lovely. So I saw her at the at the uh, 25th anniversary uh, dinner that they had on February 5th of earlier this year, and she looks great at 71. Wow. She doesn't look... She doesn't look 31. I won't, I'm not being ridiculous, but for 71, she looks amazing. That is amazing. Lorena Velasquez is easily one of the most beautiful B-movie chicks in the history of the cinema. She had my, my famous line, put the mask back on. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And she appeared with our, uh, oh, with our friend Johnny Legend on that show, too, who reintroduced her to the Aztec mummy. And man, they've never interviewed any of the three of us to be on TV. I know documentaries what like that. that. <laughs> yeah, we're the SoCal trio. Steve Sims, it is a pleasure to have you being one of uh, the Southern Californians now, from Georgia to Southern California. It's so good to have you here. Well, thank you. Did, I, did we miss any other territories in our job in the job review? Well, you know what? I we'll think we missed a actually. lot of territories, and I think how about the legendary Jake the Milkman Millican? Yeah, AWA. I had him listed, too, and I, I, for, I totally forgot about him. He's one of those absolutely, I, I read the sobbing results about, but I never actually got to see Jake. And the last time I physically saw Wade Keller was at Rochester, where Jake was on a push. He was getting wins. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. That is down. <laughs> many, 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 many moons ago. That is excellent. That is excellent. Oh, well, as the Ramones say, gaba gaba, we accept you, one of us, one of us. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, this this started out as Alfredo Esparza and Vandal Drummond, but this is the uh, the uh, sacred SoCal trio of Alfredo Esparza, Vandal Drummond, and Steve Dr. Lucha Sims. The new show, it's going to be featuring Steve Sims, too. That's right, yes. <laughs> the newest member. <laughs> That's right, one of us, baby. <laughs> so, ladies, I don't have a, I don't have a black cat, though. Well, there's always either. time for that. Actually, Fredo doesn't have one too either. I don't have pets. I don't have pets. I'm allergic. Are you really? No. I'm oh, not. we know. Oh, we know how to beat you in the ring, then. That's right. I'm, we I'm not allergic to cats. We could use a, a, a yeah. cat as a foreign object. Just kind of rub him up against <laughs> Fredo's nose. And, <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll have to hook up at some point and get together. Now, that would be some incredibly strange wrestling. That would be. That would rock. And you, you, Steve, you mentioned about what territories have we not covered. I propose, Fredo, I know we talked about this, but I propose we have a Jobber Palooza episode maybe once every other month and encourage people to write in about their favorite jobbers or jobbers that they've heard about and have been curious about. You know, whatever uh, whatever turns you on, babies, everybody phone in, write in. You can uh, contact me at Liger, L-Y-G-E-R, at AOL.com. And, oh, Fredo, plug your website before we go. My websites are LuchaWorld.com, and my DVD site is SlamBamJam.com, where I'm currently having a sale. And, Kurt, your website? www.StandTheEmbryo.com. I'm actually on a bit of a roll, uh, inserting as much good stuff as I can, and uh, lots on wrestling. I have a... I have a question on the website. Will there be feedback on UFC 100? Will you continue the standing embryo UFC review tradition? Do you want to see it, Steve? <laughs> I, well, I would love to see it, but... Then I I'm putting it on. It. I will, I will Kurt, not... I re- Kurt, I refuse to see it. Oh, then I will have to force you to see it. <laughs> oh, like the ca- infamous Captain Lenny. You were fused. You were fused. So, uh, we got to let Steve Sims plug whatever he wants now. Yeah, do you want to plug anything, Steve? I, oh, no, no, I have nothing to plug other than um, Fabi Apache dating advice. <laughs> we this, need to call him. What, what this, this, everyone? This, this Sunday on XCJTV.com, Channel 5, and Ciudad Juarez <laughs> at about 1 p.m. Pacific time. Fabi Apache advice. There you go. Well, Steve, since you requested if you it, can I will stand, it. If you can stand the 10 minutes of commercials and all the gummy, 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 gummies. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you requested it, Steve, I will do a thorough review of UFC 100, and thank you for the request. I have a reason to do it now. So, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Alfredo Esparza, Steve Sims, and myself, We want to thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. And remember, if you're walking through Southern California and you see a bright light streaking across the sky, it is not a shooting star. It is a heavenly handful of Montsell's powder. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Good night. Good night.